Greetings and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screens look into the art of GMing. Today we're joined by Green-Eyed Trombonist. Hi, guys. I like to start from the very beginning. How did you first get involved with tabletop RPGs? So I knew about tabletop RPGs for a long time. I'd always wanted to try playing them, but I didn't have people in my life who played them. And actually, in high school and things, people that I knew would make fun of it. And so I never felt like I really had anyone to go and play with. So I didn't get started in an actual game until about four years ago. And that campaign kind of uh, flew by the wayside. <laughs> but then a lovely thing happened, and tabletop RPGs started to be streamed more often. People were seeing them. It was getting more popular, especially with D&D 5e coming out. And I could suddenly play with other people and not have to sit in the same room with them. So since that happened, what was that? A year and a half ago now? Is that right? That feels right. Uh, I've been involved with a ton of different one-shots, uh, a d bunch of streamed campaigns, non-streamed campaigns, and uh, started DMing just a little bit ago, actually. Are you DMing in person, or is that over the internet? Over the internet. So you have just a little bit of experience with face-to-face? Yeah, just a little bit. I really like doing uh, internet stuff because I can play with friends who live in Brazil, Australia, uh, Austria, all at the same time. And we aren't bound by needing to be in the same location. And I just, I kind of like the dynamic more online than in person. In your experience, what was the difference in dynamic? Well, when you're playing a game all sitting around together at a couch, that's great. But at the same time, people get distracted, they get up, they take phone calls, they're eating snacks, they're on their phones. So I didn't like the level of investment that I was getting out of those games. It just kind of felt like we weren't really in it. And I really liked the role play aspect of tabletop RPGs. So breaking out of character to do these activities wasn't working for me. But when I play an online game, especially when I'm uh, in a streaming group for it, we're very involved. Uh, if someone has to get up, it doesn't disturb nearly as much as it would in person. So the RP is present and it doesn't break. And when you're doing this online, are you doing face cams or is it purely voice? I've done both, actually. So I like to do face cams personally. That's just me. But I know a lot of people that I have uh, played these games with aren't comfortable having their face out there on the internet or just for a few people to see. So they've done voice or there's just been a few games where I wasn't into the face cam for that one uh, session. So I would do voice only. Um, I like either, actually. Do you think it's easier for your players to get into character if they are not on camera? That depends on the person, I think. There are some people who 
not being on camera gives them that extra barrier. So it's more okay for them to do the crazy things or that really cool thing that they want to try that is out of character for them, but in character for who they're playing. While other people, they kind of feed off of that energy of being able to see other people's reactions to them and using their hands to show uh, kind of what they want to do. So it you kind of have to gauge it based on the group. When you started DMing, did you start with an original adventure or did you start with a supplement? So I started my DM journey by actually writing articles about how to create campaigns and how to create fandom-based campaigns and character sheets. So when I actually stepped into the DM role officially, I was doing a Sailor Moon rendition of a D&D campaign. So I made it up completely from scratch based on the show, but also adapting a lot of material. And which edition of D&D was this in? That's in 5e. It's a really adaptable system that works uh, for many different fandoms, actually. There's I've made Harry Potter sheets, My Little Pony sheets, Sailor Moon, uh, (laughs) serial mascots. That was an interesting one. So I just really like how the system can be used for so many different things. And that D&D, yes, it has a lot of rules, but it always comes back to the rule of cool. So if this is fun and your players are enjoying doing it, kind of let them have that fun, you know? What was the impetus for the breakfast cereal mascot hack (laughs) of 5e? Uh, So at that point, I had been creating fandom character sheets for a while, and I was talking with uh, an old social media manager who's no longer at the company that I write for, but they uh, just were like, someone wanted the Kool-Aid guy as a fandom character, and that evolved into doing serial mascots. (laughs) So who was in the party? So that one, I haven't played as a full campaign yet, but uh, Snap, Crackle, and Pop were in there. Uh, Tony the Tiger was there. Um, the Captain from Captain Crunch was in there. And if it had gotten super popular, I was ready to expand with like Count Chocula and all these other things. Were Snap, Crackle, and Pop a single playable character? Or were they each individual character someone could be? Uh, Players could be each individual one. For them, I combined their sheet because they would be the same basic race and background information, but they'd have small differences. Uh, For instance, there's an older brother, a middle brother, and a younger brother, and they have different roles if you look up like the lore of snap crackle and pop because there is a lore to them one of them is more mature another one is really the trickster so you get small differences in how they'd be role played while still maintaining that they have the same basic background and what was the perception difficulty check to find out why kids love cinnamon toast crunch (laughs) Uh, It depends on the age of the character doing the check. (laughs) 
So it sounds like you like 5e's flexibility for basing a story on, but have you had any problems with a certain aspect of 5e being inflexible? I don't think so, really. Uh, I think inflexibility ends up coming down to the players and how they want to play the game. So there are certain people who focus more on the RP and the storytelling, and then there are min-maxers. And if you have those two playing a game and they don't see eye to eye about what makes it fun, that's kind of where the inflexibility comes in. But if you have everyone in agreement about what you want to get out of the campaign and what the focus is, then there's no problem. As the dungeon master, how do you resolve conflicts between the people that want to RP and the people that want to play the numbers, as it were? So what I have done is I have DM'd for streams, and I've made it clear when the group has gotten together that we're doing this for entertainment. Uh, it's a lot of it has been charity streaming events and things like that. So it's to entertain to help raise money for a charity. And therefore, my DM style is that we're not going to get bogged down in the rules. Because when you get bogged down in the rules for entertainment value, it loses something. So I've made it clear for the groups as we start and go in that this is kind of the focus of this game. This is what's important here so that there's no confusion going into it. And then I've also done that for the audience where I have started the game and said, we are doing this for charity. This is just for fun. If you're expecting us to do everything by the rules, this might not be the right game for you. <laughs> do you generally stick to single shots or do you have an ongoing campaign? I am not currently DMing an ongoing campaign. I am involved in two ongoing campaigns, one in D&D, one in, uh, I think it's called Monster Hearts right now. And then I have a recurring one shot that I participate in. And eventually with time, oh, time is the biggest problem in the world. <laughs> I don't have enough of it. But if I have time, I would actually like to start an ongoing, recurring Supernatural D&D 5e campaign. Supernatural being the show? Yes. So what are your current characters? So for that one, uh, you would definitely need the Winchester Brothers. So you would need a Dean and a Sam. Uh, you'd probably need a Castiel. I have a preference for Charlie, but there are so many characters that have moved in and out of that show that you could create uh, probably 20 plus character sheets of things that the party could come together and combine as. So I don't have a super preference on that. I just really like the idea of following through with the starting off with these one-stop shops and going to a town and having to solve the mystery and then fight the baddie related to that mystery and eventually finding out that there is a deeper underlying thing occurring. I really like that idea for the campaign. Do you start the conversion process with the characters or the setting itself? It depends on what I'm feeling like that day. So when I started these, I started with Sailor Moon, and it was because I could see 
Sailor Mars and Sailor Mercury in my head and how their characters would be. And that made it really easy to expand out and do the rest of the characters. And then the campaign came later. With Supernatural, I see the campaign in my head first. I don't see like, oh, yeah, Dean would totally be this fighter character or barbarian or whatever. That I'm more loose with for those characters, but the campaign is more solid. Are these campaigns available somewhere online? There is an article giving suggestions of how to create a supernatural campaign that people can find over at Geek and Sundry. And then all of my fandom character sheets are available in articles on Geek and Sundry as well. Is there a specific way they should look them up? If you look up like Harry Potter D&D, it comes up. If you look up Sailor Moon D&D, it comes up. So... Just doing a simple Google search with D&D, fill in the fandom. If I've written about it, it'll show up on Geek and Sundry as one of the top results. Do you feel that your time spent as a dungeon master has changed your play style as a character? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I think... As a person, it makes me more understanding and appreciative of all the work all of the DMs I've had have had to go through. But my focus when playing is usually in the RP, uh, usually ends up being kind of chaotic <laughs> and fire related. But I don't think I've changed too much on that. I've never really seen the point of arguing with a DM about the rules, uh, especially not for more than like 10 seconds. I've always had the opinion and uh, talked about the idea that when we're playing, the DM is the narrator, they're the final say. So if they say something is this way and the book says it's that way, we are going with what the DM says. So I don't think I've had any changes relating to anything like that. Is there anything different that your current GMs do that you've looked at folding into your own DM style? Oh, definitely. Uh, my one-shot games that I do a lot of, and the reason that I started DMing is because of trainer Jody. And he's my DM for the one-shots, and I based a lot of my DM style on him and advice that I've gotten from him regarding being ready to improv, not getting super bogged down into the details, and just really focusing on the fun of it rather than on all these little nitty things in my brain. Do you think there's anything that you do that you've given them advice on to help their GMing? Uh, I'm so bad at being like, yes, I'm great at this thing and everyone should follow that. I'm horrible at doing things like that. I guess I'm good at being on stream and realizing that it's not really about me, it's about the audience. So I hope that someone's taken information like that and advice related to that from me, but never something I've outwardly said or anything. During the streams, do you do anything to add to the immersion in terms of maybe music or sound effects? 
Sometimes, yes. I've made lists and just depending on the, how the tech works, I definitely think it's useful to have uh, songs, especially when you're doing a fandom campaign. You should have sound effects and songs and things that relate to the fandom that you're doing. However, with streaming, then you can get copyright things and muted. So if you want to hold on to it for later, what I've done is I've looked up fan covers because those don't have copyrights in effect, and they're less likely to get hit by the mute crazy algorithms. So who was your very first character? My very first character that I actually played in a game was, um, uh, her name was Melania, and she was, um, an elf ranger in D&D second edition. And the most important thing in my head for this character was that she had a pet black ferret named Snow. And Snow was awesome. <laughs> was there a specific inspiration for this character? For that character, since it was my first time creating one for a game, I just told the DM that I wanted to uh, shoot a longbow, and I wanted a pet ferret named Snow, and they created everything else for me, uh, except for my alignment. And I ended up playing true neutral alignment, which was such a bad choice, but I did that because the rest of the party was going towards, like, they they wanted evil alignments, and I didn't want an evil alignment, so the closest I could get with keeping party harmony was a true neutral, but true neutrals are so boring to play. <laughs> Do you stick to alignments when you're running a game? Yes and no. So in the Sailor Moon campaign that I ran, one of the things that happened was our tuxedo mask, and for those who don't know Sailor Moon, tuxedo mask is really thought of as a lawful good character. And our tuxedo mask ended up stealing a car to get to the next spot to stop uh, something that needed to happen. And because he stole a car, <laughs> uh, he got there early. And so there was like a punishment built into the system where he had to fight the bad people there alone, which of course did more damage to his health. And it was in my head a good way to cause a kind of a punishment for not following his alignment while still keeping it true to the game. Do you prefer? having an alignment system versus letting players do whatever they want without consequence? <laughs> I do think that an alignment system is helpful for the role-playing aspect. It gives you a general sense of when a character is acting completely out of character. However, I don't think that a player's alignment necessarily has to be the same as when they started. So I have a character that started off as lawful good and has moved to chaotic neutral due to the events of the game. Uh, she 
happens to hate urban environments and was forced into urban environments and staying in Waterdeep, of all places, for a very long time. So because of her backstory and her hatred of the urban atmosphere, that has changed her alignment and the way that she reacts to people. So I just I don't think it's necessarily needs to be a super strict alignment, but it's a good idea to uh, understand when your character is going off the rails. Going back to that evil party, was that the short-lived game? Oh, yes. That lasted two sessions, I think. And then they never got back together. Uh, so I was sad because I didn't get to play with Snow anymore. But I think it was for the best in the end. Maybe I'll resurrect Snow in a future game. Did it disband just due to real-life events? Yeah, it was people couldn't get together for things, and they didn't want to spend so much time playing a campaign every day, because these sessions were lasting six hours because of that constant getting up and checking phones and doing other things. So it was a huge time commitment that ended up just not working out. So you wouldn't have any concerns GMing for an evil party? Oh, no, I wouldn't have any problems with that. Just as long as everyone knows going in, that's what the intent of the group is. Would you have any red lines for what an evil character could do? I think ultimately it comes down to communication with the party. I haven't explored far enough into evil characters to know if there's anything that I would do a full stop on. But I would definitely want to talk to everyone in the party first, get an understanding of what their boundaries are, so that I don't do anything as a DM or encourage anything as a DM that would make my party uncomfortable. Full utilization of the X card then? Yes. I definitely think that the X card is a wonderful thing to have in any RPG and in some other games as well, uh, so that we make sure that we are creating a safe environment while still exploring interesting and kind of controversial issues. When you're getting a new game started, how do you choose which players to have in your party? Usually... It's uh for online games, it's kind of a first come first serve thing. I figure out generally what campaign I want to do, describe the campaign shortly and how many players I would need minimum and how many I would need maximum for the game. And then I put it out into the world and see who answers back, talk to them a little bit about day's commitment, everything like that. I haven't had a problem yet uh, with issues, but I think that's because I do preface kind of what I'm doing in the game and what my intentions are with the game before the players enter into it. And when you start that game, how do you go about letting the players build their characters? Do you give them any guidelines? It depends on what the game is. Uh, for the Sailor Moon game, since I had created character sheets, I let the players know, 
hey, here's where these character sheets are that I've created. You can use them as a guideline. You can use them in their entirety, or you can create your own. Just let me know what you're doing. And that has worked really well, I think. Uh, there were some people who had never seen Sailor Moon before actually in that game. So having the previously created character sheets and letting them know that I was basing my campaign off of the original 1990s uh, first story arc uh, helped them get an idea of the background and who their characters were. Was that a single shot or was that a series? That was a single shot. I would not be adverse to continuing it for another specialty campaign kind of a deal or creating a full Sailor Moon campaign in the future where we actually do meet weekly or uh, once every two weeks or something. What was the last time that you played in a made-from-scratch homebrew campaign, or that you ran one, if you have? I wouldn't say that I've participated in any super-structured homebrew kind of things. I've participated in a lot of games and obviously GM'd own games with homebrew elements to them, and then there's just been, like, kind of regular play with uh, friends that has been uh, kind of RPG LARP related, but nothing super strict and making up our own system. So you prefer kind of sightseeing through familiar settings rather than creating a completely new setting. I think that it depends on what I want to do for the system. I have no problems creating something new, but for the most part, I have been in situations where it's based on something else. As a DM, I think it's easier to pull elements from other work to create a campaign that can quickly get the players engaged and have them understand the material that's going on. I definitely think it takes more work to create something completely from scratch and build a new world. I'm not opposed to doing that. I am a child who wrote fan fiction, so uh, that kind of gives an idea where I like to play with previously made characters and previously made settings, but I'm not opposed to dumping those characters in a completely new world or uh, having a setting with completely new characters. Are there any podcasts or streams of role-playing that you're currently watching and taking inspiration from? Oh, 100% hyper RPG streams. They have so many different role-playing games occur on that channel. I am particularly fond of Vanquished. I think that group works really well together, and it's gotten me into reading all the comics, so clearly it's doing a great job. But I also really like watching weekly affirmations because those are tabletop LARPs and RPGs from independent creators that 
do the system in a different way than we would have thought of before. So you look at things like Blackbeard's Bride that was on there or The Porch, uh, which recently won the Golden Cobra uh, overall award thing. And these are games that don't function like your typical D&D, Pathfinder, Shadowrun games, but they are still very clearly tabletop LARPs, tabletop RPGs. And that's something that I absolutely adore. I love being able to see that system and it just cements in my mind that there is no one right way to do things. And as long as the group is having fun together, that's the most important element. Have you picked up any of the RPGs you've seen on Hyper RPG? I haven't looked over the rules for Vanquished yet. I definitely will eventually. I am getting a little bit better at understanding Shadowrun. I lead one of the corporations in the metagame for Hyper RPG. Hashtag Evo. Corp that cares. <laughs> so I've been getting a little bit more going on there, but I've definitely looked over the porch. I've picked up Bluebeard's Bride. I've picked up Open Legend. And I'm going to be involved with a few games for Open Legend coming up. So I definitely look at the channels, go, oh, that one's awesome. We're getting that right now. As the person in charge of running the game, would you rather have something a little crunchier with clearly defined rules? Or would you rather have something more free form where the rules may be a bit more vague if there even are rules. I like freeform for sure. Crunchy helps solidify certain things in my mind. Being able to go, okay, we roll this dice at this time. Yeah, that's simpler, I think, but I think that the experience from the freeform RPGs, when you have a good group working together to create something, is much more meaningful to me. Do you have any situations that you've run into in your games where you decided to just set the rules aside for the sake of the story? Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. I usually make it clear that I'm not going to be super obsessed with the rules and that I encourage players to try things in new ways. And if they're going to try something that's super in character and is really cool, that I have no problem with them trying for it as a GM. And as a player, uh, I've done a few things that have made my GMs kind of blink and go, I've never had anyone try to do things that way. Okay, sure, go for it. It's one of those things I really enjoy. And have you had any situations where one person got a more freeform interpretation of the rules and the next time somebody tried to do something, it was more of a rule set interpretation that they were given? From me or from someone else? Uh, from you or from the game master if you were a player in this situation. I think I've been extremely lucky with my DMs uh, in that they have so far been very open to people trying things. They don't necessarily say, okay, that's cool. Of course, I'll let you do it. But they've been open to people trying. And I've tried to emulate that as well. 
this idea that, okay, well, we could follow the rules strictly. And if that's something you want to do, but if you sell it to me, if you really sell it to me, I will let you try this thing that's not included in the rules. Have you ever had a situation where a player didn't succeed where another player did and took it personally? I hope not. <laughs> With the Shadowrun metagame, there is a lot of official rules and things that we do. Like every week you have a certain amount of AP and you can spend that on research and development, attack rolls, different things like that. One of the things I like about Evo is every once in a while we have people role play something within our chat room that's just, it has no effect on the metagame. It's just for us and we roll dice and figure out exactly what broke down. And I have had people try to do something and fail where someone else succeeded. And I don't think that there has been hurt feelings about it. Because I think that there's been a very strong sense of this is just for fun and just us being crazy people. So if I'm wrong about that, please let me know, people of Evo, so that I can rectify the situation and apologize. Is there anything that you do to prevent any sort of negative bleed between RP and real life? Prefacing games with, we are playing this game, it's for this audience or it's for us if it's something happening in person or just off stream and letting them know we're here to have fun, uh, setting up those kind of boundaries to it that huh, it's Vegas, baby. What happens in the game stays in the game. I think that helps. It doesn't necessarily work all the time. If there's something that's truly contentious that happens in the game, sometimes bleed happens, but trying to have that in people's heads at the start of the game, making it clear. I think following something that Strix actually said, where she does a clear uh, delineation between during the game calling the players by the character names and after the game not using the character names, only using their real names, helps create that subconsciously in people's minds that this is a different person. It's not this person who has the same face who did this to me. So I think that can help. Have you ever had to diffuse tensions as a GM? As a GM, no. As a moderator on Twitch, definitely. As a moderator on Twitch, I think it's just assumed that you would have to. Oh, yeah. And, you know, moderators, they're people too. So every once in a while, we're not going to be able to help diffuse the situation. And we need to step back as well. But, you know, we're trying our best, and I think it's worked pretty well over at Hyper RPG. Thumper community is going strong, so. Have you ever GM'd for strangers, or do you know everybody at your table every time? For that Sailor Moon game, I had never seen one of their faces before. So the first time that I saw them was when we set up our Roll20 account. I play a lot of games with strangers. Uh, my first online stream game, I had never met any of the people there before. And my first game with Trainer Jody, 
was actually for um, International Tabletop Day. He does a stream every year for that. So he invited me to join up with their stream. I had never met any of them before. I didn't really know them. I just had gotten to know uh, Jody through the Geek and Sundry Twitch channel chat. And now I meet up with this group every few months, every time we've got a big charity stream or a channel has reached a certain number of viewers and we're celebrating. And I feel like I know them a lot better. I've actually been able to hang out with a couple of them at Comic-Con and uh, know a little bit more about their lives. So I'm of the opinion that it's totally cool to play with strangers as long as as you're able to set up those rules and boundaries of uh, keeping everyone comfortable, and that strangers don't have to be strangers for long. If money weren't an issue, what's one thing that you would want to buy or have made to enhance one of these role-playing streams? Oh, if money weren't an issue, I would be cosplaying for days. I would... Uh, be completely dressed up as different characters related to it for the Sailor Moon game. Talk about that a lot. Uh, I actually did do a little bit of dress up as a character from the Negaverse, but if money wasn't an issue, I would have gone full Queen Barrel and like had the hair done and the ears and the dress and just had everything on point. If money was an issue, I would definitely be doing costuming and stuff like that more. And then, you know, basic things like great video cameras and great microphones and balancing everything out. Do you do voices for the NPCs? Ideally, yes. (laughs) I may stream on Twitch and do different things, but, and I was raised in theater, but I still get nervous when I start out things. So uh, I might take a little bit for me to get comfortable and be really into doing the voices, but that is a goal I have. Do you think it's important for players to use voices for their characters to help differentiate? Not necessarily. It depends on the character. Not everyone is great at voice work. And if you do a certain voice that is uh, harsh on your vocal cords, trying to keep that up, especially for an extended campaign, but even just in a one shot for a few hours, that is actually damaging. So I don't see a need to require players to do a voice for a different character if they stay with something that they're comfortable with, I think that's more important and we'll let them explore their options more. And in all the games you've run, have you ever had what was supposed to be just a side throwaway NPC just take on a important game-changing role that you never intended? Yes, actually. Uh but not necessarily in that they became more central to the game. I actually had characters kill one of my NPCs that I intended to have in the final battle, and that NPC was in a romantic relationship with one of the other NPCs, and then the party actually uh, disguised themselves as that NPC. One of them uh, did a 
a situation where they created the image of that NPC to try to infiltrate the group. And it failed. And because they showed themselves as this character, the one that had been in the romantic relationship with them only attacked the person who dressed up as their uh, deceased lover. So there have been changes in that way, uh, not with them becoming like central character and great fun and joining the party, but in that the actions of the players in a way I did not expect, profoundly changed how the final battle went. Is that the biggest swerve that your players have thrown at you? Or is there a more memorable time that the uh, train went off the rails when you didn't (laughs) expect it to? I think I'm always prepared for the train to go off the rails, so it's not as bad as it could be. There are definitely... Things that have happened in games where I go, okay, did not expect that, but sure, let's go with it. Or when the players have done something and then we finish the one shot and we're talking afterwards and I just go, you guys know you could have just done this and you would have been fine. (laughs) So players will always surprise you. But I think that one might have been the most successful and most interesting to the actual storyline of uh, the things that I've done. Are there times where you intentionally try to railroad a party or is that something you try to avoid at all costs? I try to not railroad if I can avoid it. Um, I will make maps and make multiple pathways leading to different things where the players can choose to do all of them or choose to do some of them, and it's completely okay. I have had a moment, actually, where my players chose to go to a park, and connected to that park was a baseball field, which is one of the other places they could go. And they actually had a tool that was showing them where things were and where to go. And they were trying to decide which direction to go in. And I kind of maybe sarcastically pointed out that they're right next to the baseball field and don't know where the ice cream shop is, because that's another place they needed to go. Uh, but I think that's probably the closest I've gone to railroading my characters, my players. I've... I've tried to keep it more open for them and understand that they need room to actually role play. And it's not about me and what I expect. If they get stuck on the tiniest detail that you hadn't even thought of, is there a way to get them back on track? Uh, Start rolling dice. <laughs> Be like, okay, um, so this is taking some time and just start rolling dice. And it doesn't even necessarily matter if you're rolling them for something or not. But when you start rolling dice or start uh, having small changes happening around them while they're debating things, it kind of creates that idea of, oh, shoot, (laughs) stuff is happening. We need to go. And that can help get them back on track to the main storyline. And if they don't react to the sound of the dice rolling, do you have a break in case of emergency encounter? (laughs) Yes. So 
I have some things in games that I do set up on a time limit. And it's not necessarily a time limit where I'm like, okay, five minutes have gone by, this has changed. It's more when they start doing things that take a long time, I start rolling the dice to see if there's any negative impacts that are going to occur. And so there are ways to hint at that, especially when I'm like, oh, okay, we got that. And I start writing things down in addition, but I will put things in the game depending on if the players start taking too long to make a decision. Have you ever had to just end up dropping a piano on a character's head because they refuse to move? (laughs) Not yet, thankfully. But I did have players decide that they needed to take a long rest, uh, (laughs) which lasted the entire night, and they had everything they needed and decided to take a long rest instead of going to the final battle. And that definitely could have had severe negative consequences for them, which luckily I did not roll. (laughs) Because I did not want to kill them all, but there was definitely a higher chance of the really bad things happening because they did that. With Dungeons & Dragons or any system where the characters need to refresh certain abilities, has it, in your experience, caused them to squirrel away the abilities that they could be using more often? As a player, I definitely do that. So even if someone hasn't really, it hasn't been apparent to me as a DM, I'm sure that's happening. Have you ever done anything to try to counteract that? Ultimately, it's up to the players what moves they want to use. And it's okay if they want to scroll away certain things, but if this is meant to be a big battle and the roll of the dice is going badly against the characters, they're probably more likely to pull out those big moves. So I don't think I really need to do anything more than just set up the game uh, to the best of my ability. In retrospect with them deciding to take a long nap before a boss battle Would you change the rules for that situation? That was a special situation, uh, actually. So the characters had been fighting and they'd gone lower and they didn't know that I had set up the end of game uh, to be very close to Sailor Moon. So when, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen 1990 Sailor Moon, you're going to learn a little bit about it now. For the show, when Sailor Moon goes against Queen Beryl, she basically has to collect all these rainbow uh, crystals, and they all end up together and they form the Silver Millennium Crystal. Sailor Moon finds out that she is the Princess of the Moon, and uh, having that knowledge and being transformed into the Moon Princess kind of gives her the energy she needs to not be defeated and to get Queen Beryl going back. So what I put into the game was that I was rolling 
And the players didn't know this at first, but I was rolling to see if the rainbow crystals would activate and become the silver millennium crystal. And I had actually put things in that if that happens and Sailor Moon learns that she's the moon princess, then the players get their health regenerated and actually get all these super cool powers. But they had no idea about that. So they took a long rest before this battle. Is that something you would have changed, making it more obvious, or do you prefer having something hidden that would be more rewarding to an industrious player? I think it's better to have things like that hidden. It's a major plot point, and even though I'm usually playing these games on streams and it's about the audience, I want the players to have fun too. So having things like that hidden and having them have that moment where it's like, you, your health has been regenerated. You now have this move that you can use once a day and blah, 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 blah. And having them react to that, though, with like surprise and shock and being really happy, I think is actually better. Well, we are going to start wrapping up, but... Before we do, I'm going to ask you some questions from the PIVO questionnaire pioneered by Bernal people. Yeah. What is your favorite word? You know, I have been dreading this question <laughs> because I'm still not sure. It's something like juxtaposition, plethora, uh, verbosity, things like that. I like words because of their mouthfeel. So I don't think I have any one favorite, but we'll go with plethora. Do you think a background as a musician has affected that? Probably. <laughs> as the, uh, um, <laughs> rhythm to a word? Yes. So I grew up doing theater, grew up doing band, and grew up writing poetry, actually. So the feeling of a word is extremely important to me, and the way that it flows from my mouth uh, makes me lean towards certain words more than others. One of my favorites is minimum, which <laughs> you can say it with the Doppler effect, and it just sounds natural. Mm -hmm. Minimum. Nice. Yeah, I like that. What is your least favorite word? Oh, um, a lot of curse words, actually. I don't like harsh words, and curse words are usually short and very harsh. So they are not pleasing to my ear and kind of create just um, an almost Pavlovian response of uh, negative feelings in myself. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? It could be so many things. I, I write parody songs and it could be a song is playing in my head and I get one line of a parody that fits it and then I'll write the entire song. Or I'll be traveling uh, on a train and something will pop into my mind and then suddenly I'm writing a chapter for something. Uh, so I don't know if I even know random things happen in my brain and then I need to get them out. What turns you off? Negativity. Have you ever had to stop or halt a stream because of negativity? 
I have needed to call out certain things and make it clear that that's not acceptable. Uh, for instance, in my chat room, I have banned most curse words and most negative language, the common stuff that I could see from trolls coming in. And I have had to make it clear, you know, we don't talk like that in here. Uh, and if you can come back and be respectful, you're totally welcome with open arms. So I've had to do that. I have also had some emotional games. I did stream the Super Columbine Massacre RPG, which was all about exploring emotions and moral quandaries and the fact that even people who do completely horrible things are still human. It was extremely hard for me to do. I prefaced it very early on with my community. I let them know through Twitter that I was playing this game and that it wouldn't be for everyone. And like the title of the stream was Empathy Needed. I tried to make it very clear that this is something that we were doing and I wanted to create a safe space, but still a space where we could explore this extremely dark event in U.S. history. Normally, the next question is, what is your favorite curse word to hear from your players? But let's just substitute that with exclamation. I really like gasps and sounds uh, that aren't necessarily words, but uh, just things like gasps and sounds of awe and uh, different things like that are so genuine and such an emotional response that I love them because they're letting me know that I'm doing a good job as a DM creating a, an, experience, an experience for my players. Do you have an all-time favorite gasp that you elicited? Oh, it's probably got to be the gasp when they realize they've done something completely wrong <laughs> and that they're about to have this negative impact but they have like a gasp and then a laugh as they realize what they've done what sound or noise do you love i love going to the woods i like when it's not a super loud experience and you've just got like the sounds of bird chirping and the wind through the leaves, it feels very peaceful to me. In the same sense, I love the sound of the ocean. I uh, really like waves and the gulls and everything. Those are things in nature that I love. But I mean, I was raised in music, so there are very few songs I don't like. What sound or noise do you hate? I don't really like the sound of fingers on chalk. I hate an unresolved note. So when people go through a song and they stop right before the resolution that would occur at the end, that really bugs me and like sets something off in me. And I really don't like the sound of someone singing out of tune on purpose. What game system would you like to attempt? Vanquished, for sure. I'd like to do their superhero RPG. What game system would you not like to attempt? 
Uh, <laughs> I'm up for most of anything. I think GMing Shadowrun would be an extreme challenge. And when your games conclude, what do you like to hear from your players? I like that when a game concludes and the stream goes offline, players talk about what happened during the game and they reminisce and go like, oh, it was so cool when you did this thing. And no, I really like doing this. I was so happy when I got to do this. I really like when players keep talking about the game once it's finished. Earlier, you had mentioned ways to find your writing through Google. Mm -hmm. Where could our listeners find your streams? If you guys go to twitch.tv slash greeneyetrombonist, you'll find my streams. Right now, uh, I don't know when this is coming out, but at the moment, I am streaming all of Pokemon Moon. <laughs> so I think I've got about 30 hours left to finish that game. And that'll be by next week. You guys can find me on Geek and Sundry under uh, Ilea Marion Pig for my author name. And on YouTube, Green Eye Trombonist, uh, Twitter, Green Eye T-Bone. And if you want to hear a completely uninformed opinion about games, <laughs> because I did not play a lot of them when I was younger, uh, you guys can go to pig.net. And actually learn about my family, which is weird. But you can see that I've been doing blog posts called Gaming Grokt. And my ideas about games and things. Well, it's been a pleasure having you at the studio. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. I've been your host, Moon Rules. Make sure to check out AudioEntropy.com's other offerings, such as All Along the Watchtower for talk about the DC animated universe, Ward and Beast for a battle-by-battle -battle review of the Beast Wars between the Maximals and Predacons, and keep up to date on what's going on in the universe with the newly released Cosmic Calls featuring Bert and Yoretta. Feel free to leave a message on Twitter at ITMS underscore podcast. And remember... When in doubt, go with the rule of fun.